If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, to Genesis chapter 40 as we uh, continue on here in the book of Genesis. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 40, verse 1, and we'll, uh, we'll read down through chapter 41, verse 13. And as, uh, as our brother Stan hinted as he uh, read the, the New Testament reading from Romans 5, we should be thinking here about Joseph in his circumstances, how he was kidnapped, sold into slavery, how he now finds himself imprisoned despite his righteous conduct uh, in the matter of Potiphar's wife, and, and so on. And now he comes to interpret some dreams, and one of them pertains to somebody getting out of prison. Meanwhile, Joseph himself has no idea when he'll be getting out. So let's, let's look to the text, Genesis 40, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then it came about, after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream on the same night, each with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, Behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces sad today? Then they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph And said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches, and it was budding. Its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house, for I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And within 
three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. When the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth, youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Now, as we look to this text this morning, we'll do so under, under three main headings. First of all, interpretations belong to God. Interpretations belong to God. Secondly, messengers must tell the truth. Messengers must tell the truth. And then thirdly, God's providence is mysterious. God's providence is mysterious. So we have interpretations belong to God, messengers must tell the truth, and God's providence is mysterious. Now, as we know, Joseph had several very significant life events that were all connected to dreams. His dreams, of course, were one of the contributing factors that helped to put him on the outs with his brothers back in chapter 37. He had dreamed those two dreams that implied his superiority. Sheaves of wheat that belonged to his brothers were bowing down to his sheaf. And in the other dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to him. And these dreams rendered him odious to his brothers, such that when Jacob sent Joseph out to them and they were at Shechem, they said to one another, 
In Genesis 37, 19, here comes this dreamer. Joseph had this reputation as a dreamer. And they said, uh, when they were planning to kill him, then let us see what will become of his dreams. And then here in chapter 40, Joseph interprets these two dreams of his fellow prisoners accurately. And though that did not lead to his immediate release from the prison, nevertheless, eventually, this did lead to Joseph being brought before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, of which we read in the early verses of chapter 41. And as we know, it was the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams that brought Joseph to become elevated to the second highest position in the land of Egypt. And so dreams and the interpretation of dreams played a big role in the life of Joseph. All six of those dreams in which Joseph was involved, either either as the dreamer or the interpreter, were dreams that were prophetic in nature. That is to say that in all of them, God was revealing something about the future which was to come. Joseph's two dreams pointed to his own elevation over his brothers. The dreams of the cupbearer and the baker revealed their particular futures to them. And Pharaoh's dreams revealed the future years of plenty and the future years of famine that were coming on the land of Egypt. And as we look to the Old Testament more broadly, indeed, we see that sometimes the Lord has sent these kinds of dreams to people, these dreams that were prophetic in nature. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, where he saw that that statue with the the head of gold and the the arms and the, the chest of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron. This was a prophetic dream concerning four kingdoms, and ultimately the kingdom of God, which was that stone cut without hands that smashed into that statue. Or we can think of Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about a tree being cut down and its branches lopped off, but yet the stump remained. And that tree signified to Nebuchadnezzar that he would be driven away from mankind, and his dwelling place would be with the beasts of the field, and he would be given grass to eat like the cattle and would be drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Or we could think of Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 7 with the dream of the four beasts, which signified four kings who would arise from the earth. These were dreams that God had sent to signify what was going to happen in the future. And sometimes, as we find in Scripture, the Lord sent dreams or visions, not so much in a prophetic sense concerning what was to happen in the future, but in a broader revelatory sense. We could think of Peter in Acts chapter 10 and that vision of the sheet that was let down from heaven containing all kinds of unclean animals. And the vision came and said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. But, of course, as Acts chapter 10 uh, unfolds, we understand that that vision was sent by God to prepare Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to teach him, as Peter would say in Acts 10, 34, and 35, that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Or we could think of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3, where the Lord appeared to him in a dream at night and asked Solomon to ask him, to ask the Lord what he would like the Lord to give to him. And so dreams and visions came to various ones for different reasons, and we see several examples of that in Scripture. But even though we do see the Lord sending dreams and visions, 
multiple times, multiple places in Scripture, I think we do well to keep in mind that the vast majority of dreams are nothing of this kind, right? We can't turn the experience of the minority, the great minority of people that we see having these revelatory dreams in Scripture. We can't take that and then turn that into the, uh, the expectation of the majority. The vast majority of dreams are not revelatory experiences at all, especially now with the coming of Christ and with the, the closing of the canon of Scripture. Now, I would, I would caveat that by saying that, to be fair, we do hear sometimes of, uh, especially in the current day, of, of Muslims in particular having dreams about Jesus that ultimately leads to their conversion to Christ. And I think uh, at least that, that we can't simply uh, discount those dreams, at least not all of them, as being fraudulent. And so often it seems that in those accounts, a, a Muslim will, will have a dream about Jesus, and the outcome is that it leads them either to read the Bible or to talk to a Christian who can share the gospel with them. And in cases like that, I think uh, some of which are credible, I think the thing that we need to note is that there is no new revelation that is being given. It's not as if there's something that is additional to the Scripture that is being communicated, much less anything contrary to the Scripture or contrary to the Gospel that is being communicated. And so if there's anything that comes by way of a dream like that that convicts someone of the truth of Jesus or of the need to repent and believe, then all is well and good. But again, the vast majority of dreams experienced in our day are nothing of that sort. And I don't think it's helpful to try to read too much meaning into our dreams. I had a dream last night that I, under abnormal circumstances, was supposed to uh, uh, solemnize a wedding. And I couldn't find the Book of Common Prayer to help me out with the marriage ceremony. And so I don't, I don't read too much into that. All that to say, we, we do want to take seriously the fact, though, that the Lord did use dreams and visions to reveal uh, the future to people and to speak to people in Scripture. And I think that fits in with what we find in Hebrews 1.1, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And I think we can still, again, allow for the possibility that God may use dreams to direct people to seek out Christians or to seek out Scripture so, so that they can learn the gospel. But that is in no way adding to the canon of our faith as Christians. I think uh, the words of the Scottish minister Thomas McCree were spot on when he said, the canon of our faith as Christians is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We must not look to impressions or new revelations as the rule of our duty. We're to stick to what is written as we find in Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Timothy was told not to seek out new revelations, but to be diligent, to present himself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Timothy's job is not to be seeking out visions or new experiences or new impressions, but is to be a minister of the word, accurately handling the word of truth. But still, this was a vehicle here in Genesis 40 by which the Lord did communicate future events. And here in this particular case, the cup bearer and the baker probably thought that something was up because on the same night, 
they both had a dream. And we can't be sure if they had talked together before they presented their dreams to Joseph or not, but if they did, then probably the very nature of their dreams led them to suspect something might be going on here. Because if we think about the nature of their dreams, each one of their dreams corresponded with their vocation, right? The, the cupbearer dreamed about grapes and a cup, putting it into Pharaoh's hand. The baker dreamed about baskets and bread. And each one of those dreams had this theme of three in it, right? There were three branches for the cupbearer. There were three baskets for the chief baker. And so the very nature of their dreams and coming on the same night probably would have seemed too odd or too striking to be merely coincidental. And in connection with this, we should note that phrase that appears both in chapter 40, verse 5, and you see something similar down in 41, verse 11, where we are told that both had a dream on the same night, each man with his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. And then in 41, verse 11, the cupbearer says, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And so these men had a hunch that these dreams meant something, and they understood also that there should be some interpretive meaning in this dream. But the problem was, that's why they appeared sad, was that there was no one, so they thought, to interpret the dream for them. As they say in verse 8, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. But unbeknownst to them, the servant of the jailer would be the one used by God to reveal the meaning of their dreams to them. We saw last week in chapter 39 that after Joseph had been falsely accused, he had been committed to prison, to the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But even there, even in prison, the Lord gave him favor, just as the Lord had given him favor in his slavery. So now in prison, the Lord gives him favor in the sight of the chief jailer, and he commits to the charge of Joseph, the prisoners who are there. Now, it's, it's difficult to know the exact circumstances of the prison and its precise connection to Potiphar, but we should note that the place where the baker and cupbearer were confined to jail is described as being the house of the captain of the bodyguard. You see that in chapter 40, verse 3, and in chapter 41, verse 10. This prison is the house of the captain of the bodyguard. And it was the captain of the bodyguard who put Joseph in charge of the other prisoners. And that captain of the bodyguard, of course, is none other than Potiphar himself, as you see at the end of Genesis 37 and at the beginning of Genesis 39. And so whatever the circumstances of Joseph's imprisonment were, we must not think of him as being completely taken away from Potiphar and completely put into the, the charge of, of someone else because Joseph and Potiphar evidently still have some kind of a relationship with each other. And apparently the relationship was still marked with some level of trust extending from Potiphar to Joseph inasmuch as he's the captain of the bodyguard and he's putting prisoners under Joseph's watch. And so Joseph is still operating in this venue. And now as the prisoner who's taking care of other prisoners, he notices the countenance of these two servants of Pharaoh, that they are sad and he reaches out to them. And so he says to them in verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me, please. 
And notice there that Joseph does not take honor to himself as one who can interpret dreams, but rather he gives glory to God, acknowledging that the true interpretation of dreams belong to God. And therefore, if Joseph is able to interpret these dreams, it is only because the Lord was revealing that interpretation to him. And Joseph would later be more explicit when speaking uh, to Pharaoh, as we'll see later on in in chapter 41 on on a later Sunday. He says, uh, Pharaoh says to him, I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph says, it is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so the point is, this was, this was all from the Lord. It had nothing to do with who Joseph was or with what he could do, but it was all from God. And thus, from the, the example of Joseph in this, we are reminded to give glory to God and to take no glory to ourselves. And so just as Joseph was not able to interpret dreams on his own, so we are not able to do anything apart from the grace of God. Think of the words of Jesus, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. In him, we live and move and have our being, and because of him, we live and move and have our being. We find in Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. And so what that means is all that we are, all that we are able to do, all that we have, and anything good or desirable that may be in us, all of these things are the gifts of God to us. And so Paul asked that rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And the implied answer, of course, is nothing. And then Paul goes on to ask, And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And by that he implies we better not be boasting at all. Rather, we must take our cues from Joseph. He says, Do not interpretations belong to God. We must give God the glory for all that he has granted to us and therefore take no glory or credit to ourselves. And therefore we must not boast in ourselves but in the Lord. And so we find in Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If we know and understand the Lord, then that will lead to us knowing our own insignificance, our own weakness, our own sinfulness, our own ungodliness, our own foolishness, and our own ignorance. And we will understand that All that we have is from the Lord and comes to us as a gift of sheer grace. And so give glory to God. Not only do interpretations belong to him, all things belong to him. So we find in Romans 11.36 that from him and through him and to him are all things. And that's the conclusion. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that brings us then to our second point for this morning, that God's messengers must tell the truth. 
God's messengers must tell the truth. By the revelation of God which came to him, Joseph was able to interpret the dream of the cupbearer after the cupbearer had explained this dream to him. Joseph saw that those three branches on the grapevine signified three days, and that then three days from that time, Pharaoh would lift up his head. The cupbearer would be restored to his office, would be back in the service of Pharaoh, back putting the cup into his hand. And, and in that, Joseph was giving the cupbearer good news. He was telling the cupbearer something that he was willing and ready to hear. And no doubt that would have been encouraging to him and probably would have helped to lighten the heavy mood that he was under. He was sad and dejected. He hears that three days. I'm going to be back where I was, back next to Pharaoh. This is great. And we find in verse 16 that because of this favorable interpretation, the baker seems to to get his hopes up. Joseph interpreted favorably for the first guy, for the cupbearer, so maybe he would do the same for the baker as well. Perhaps his dream, too, had a favorable meaning. But as we know, it didn't. Though like the cupbearer, his head would be lifted up. It would be lifted up in a very different way. And so Joseph says in verse 19, Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. The baker's dream thus pointed to his own execution three days in the future. Now, as we approach this account of these two dreams and the two interpretations of those dreams, many of us, many of us take this for granted. Of course, the cupbearer's dream was going to lead to his restoration. Of course, the baker's dream indicated his upcoming execution. And of course, Joseph was going to straight up give these interpretations as they came to him from God. Many of us, at least, have heard this story from our childhood, and as such, we we may not stop to think about the actual dynamics of the situation that were taking place there in the jail at that time. We might not stop to think about the humanity of Joseph and Joseph's evident concern for these two men. Right? He was he was concerned that they looked sad. He wants to cheer them up, wants to to minister to them in some way. We might forget how hard it can be to be the bearer of bad news. By this point in his life, Joseph was a man who had suffered much, and therefore he could sympathize with those who suffered. And that's, again, how his interaction with these two men began on that day, was because he saw that they were sad. And I don't doubt at all that Joseph was glad to be able to give good news to the cupbearer to to encourage him and say, hey, three days from now, you're going to be out of here. It's all right. And Joseph, as we see, was not only encouraging the cupbearer in this, but was also trying to see about his own escape from prison, right? He wants the the cupbearer to put in a good word with him. He's trying to work that angle, so to speak, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm sure that Joseph was glad to be able to give good news and, and encourage this man. But when it comes to the second dream, there was nothing to say which could give encouragement and hope. It was only bad news. And Joseph had to give that bad news to the baker, this baker who had who perked up a little bit when he heard that there, were, there was good news that came to the cupbearer. And Joseph 
gave the interpretation of the dream, though, just as it was, even though it was straight bad news. I think Calvin's comments here are insightful when he said, Although the explanation of the dream was about to prove unpleasant and severe, yet Joseph, by declaring without ambiguity what had been revealed unto him, executed with fidelity the office divinely committed to him. This freedom must be maintained by prophets and teachers that they may not hesitate by their teaching to inflict a wound on those whom God has sentenced to death. All love to be flattered. Hence the majority of teachers in desiring to yield to the corrupt wishes of the world adulterate the word of God. Wherefore no one is a sincere minister of God's word, but he who, despising reproach and being ready as often as it may be necessary to attack various offenses, will frame his method of teaching according to the command of God. Joseph would indeed have preferred to augur well concerning both, but since it is not in his power to give a prosperous fortune to anyone, nothing remains for him but frankly to pronounce whatever he has received from the Lord. Since interpretations belong to God, in giving the interpretations of these dreams to these two men, Joseph was delivering the word of God to these men. And as such, he was not at liberty to change the message or to doctor it in order to make it more palatable, more acceptable to them. He had to tell the truth. He had to tell the truth when it was good news, when it was encouraging news. He had to tell the truth also when it was bad news, even when it was bad news leading to despair. And I wanted to draw out two applications for us here. And the first is in regard to all of us who are Christians. Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, that we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, that we are to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet to do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a good conscience, so that in the thing in which we are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And that is to say that we are to be ready as Christians to speak of Christ, to speak the gospel. We're to be ready to tell others why we have hope in him. We're to do this respectfully, with gentleness and reverence, but we are to do it. Nevertheless, this means telling the good news about Jesus, the Son of God, who came into the world to save sinners. He did this by dying on the cross so that all who trust in Christ may have eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation with God. By telling that good news, though, that also means by implication that there's bad news also. There's a reason why we need a Savior. There's a reason why we need forgiveness. There's a reason why we need to be reconciled to God. And the reason is, it's because we are sinners. That we've sinned against God in more ways than we know. And apart from his grace to us in Christ, we are all on the road to hell. And by implication... So is the person that you're talking to when you're giving a reason for the hope that is in you. That apart from repenting and trusting in Christ, they too are on the road to judgment. And so as witnesses for Christ, we need to make sure that we're, we're giving both sides of the coin, so to speak, when we share the gospel with people. Now, I'm not suggesting that in every conversation that you have with a non-Christian, you should 
tell them that they are going to hell. In fact, I would recommend that you don't do that, not, not in every conversation. I think that even the, the model of Jesus in interacting with the lost and the apostles in interacting with the lost would not give us that impression that in every conversation that we have with a non-Christian, we need to be telling them that they are on the road to destruction if they don't repent. I'm not saying that, but at the end of the day, though we can express it in various ways, we do need to make sure that our communication of Christ to others contains both the good news and the bad news. People actually need to know why they really need Jesus. And the reason they need Jesus is because they are separated from God because of their sins. But Jesus, the good news, came into the world so that we can be forgiven and made new. And so like Joseph, when we declare the word of God to others, we have to be willing to tell the good news and also the bad news as well. And connected with this is a second point of application for all of us, and that is that we need to receive the word of God even when it contains things that are hard for us to hear. We must not be like the people in the Old Testament time who often would surround themselves with, with prophets that would only tell them what they wanted to hear. Right? You think of, think of Ahab and some of those closing scenes of, of the book of First Kings, how he and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were getting ready to go out to battle, and they've got all these prophets who are, who are saying, yeah, yeah, you guys, are, you guys are going to win. It's all going to go well. And Jehoshaphat says, hey, is there, is there a prophet of the Lord around here that we can, we can get some guidance from? And they said, they said, yeah, there's one guy, but he never prophesies good about me, but only evil, right? Ahab wanted nothing to do with that guy, but that was the one who actually told the truth. And similarly, we read Paul's warning this morning from 2 Timothy 4 that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. The problem is is that we all want to hear what we want to hear, but when the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, We're going to be hearing our own sins called out. We're going to be hearing our own selves called to repentance. We're going to be hearing our own selves called to to deeper faith in the Lord and to a closer walk with the Lord. And the problem is that our flesh will resist this. And when we hear convicting words that may not be what we wanted to hear, or that may even be just plain offensive to us, we all need to understand that a faithful preacher or faithful teacher of God's word is not at liberty to change the message. The calling of a pastor is to faithfully proclaim the word of God, whether it is encouraging or whether it might be discouraging to us in that particular season. I think Matthew Henry was exactly right when he said, ministers are but interpreters. They cannot make the thing otherwise than it is they deal faithfully and their message prove unpleasing, it is not their fault. Bad dreams cannot expect a good interpretation. Certainly that's not a call for any of us to be incendiary and inflammatory. A preacher must not seek extra ways of generating offense. The offense of the gospel, the offense of the cross is surely sufficient. But a pastor must be faithful to proclaim the scripture And that's offensive enough to the carnal man. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's offensive to us as Christians. And so, therefore, as Christians, we have to resist the tendency 
of our flesh to be offended by the scripture. And even if you're not a Christian, you need to, to guard against this and ask God for an open heart so that you may receive the truth, even when that truth hurts, because it is that truth that will lead you to repentance and lead you to faith in Christ. Our Lord has said, Luke nine twenty six, that whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And again, he says, Matthew eleven six, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. We have to take the word of God as it is. The good news and the bad news. We have to receive it all. We have, by the grace of the Spirit, to apply it all to ourselves and respond accordingly in faith and repentance. And that brings us then to our third point for this morning, which is that God's providence is mysterious. Now we've seen... Joseph's suffering over several chapters, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, taken to a foreign land, falsely accused, now put into prison. And now he tries to have the cupbearer put in a good word for him with Pharaoh, right? For a man in Joseph's place, this is his providential break, so to speak. My guess is that uh, there's not a great appeals process there in ancient Egypt. And if you wanted to appeal your case, This is your one shot. You've got a guy who's got the ear of Pharaoh. You have his ear for a few brief moments now. Present your case to him, and if he can relay it to Pharaoh, then so much the better for you. But as we know from verse 23, the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. And this may not be forgetting in the sense of an actual cognitive lack that he suffers now that he gets back into the service of Pharaoh, but perhaps more of just a practical forgetting. Uh, Psalm 106, verse 13, described the wilderness generation by saying, They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And their forgetting may well have been of this this practical sort. Yeah, we we passed through the Red Sea, but oh well, moving right along, who's the Lord? We don't don't care. We want to worship a golden calf. We want to commit immorality, whatever. We don't care about who the Lord is. And I wonder if that might be the situation with this this cupbearer, that Joseph gave him a good interpretation uh, from his dream. It was good and welcome news at the time. It proved to be true three days later, and then he's out of there. He's back in the good graces of Pharaoh, back in his old job, back to living the good life, and he forgot about Joseph. After all, why, why would you want to stick your neck out for a foreigner that you met in jail that you really don't know, you don't know anything about him, and... There's nothing really in it for him right now. He's back in the service of Pharaoh. He's probably just ready to forget about it and move on with life. And for two years, he did. He moved on until two years later. And Pharaoh had those dreams of which we read about in the early part of chapter 41. Now, Lord willing, we'll speak of those dreams and their interpretation at a later date when we consider uh, the remainder of chapter 41. But what we, needed, what we need to notice For now, though, is that those two dreams of Pharaoh were the thing that finally brought the cupbearer to speak to Pharaoh about Joseph. Pharaoh is clearly disturbed because of these dreams. He called for the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men so that they could give him the interpretation of those dreams, but they couldn't do it. And if you think in terms of biblical history, this does bear some resemblance also to a later scene that would take place in Babylon, right, with Daniel, 
when Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream and the magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans were unable to tell Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamed. In both cases, there in Egypt and later in Babylon, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this age was confounded and the wise men were unable to explain what God had revealed to a pagan king about the future. And on those two occasions also, the Lord used his people to interpret. Joseph here in Egypt, Daniel later in Babylon. And so the cupbearer now, finally after two years, speaks up about Joseph and what Joseph did in interpreting his dream and the dream of the baker. He says in chapter 41, verse 9, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Now, he might mean his offense of forgetting Joseph, but he might. this might be just his uh, gentle way of bringing up the fact that, hey, you remember that time when I got in trouble a few years back? Um, he might not, might not be uh, referencing Joseph at all by saying he's making mention of his offenses, but he's pointing back to what had happened, got him into prison, and uh, now is going to tell him, about this imprisoned Hebrew who could interpret those dreams. And, and sure enough, that's, that's the way it turned out. Joseph gets out of prison, he interprets those dreams. But think about Joseph here. He's innocent all along, kidnapped, sold into slavery, put into prison. And we know he's in prison for, for those two years between when the cupbearer got out and when Pharaoh had these dreams, but we have no idea how long he was in prison up to that time. All in all, it seems like between his slavery and his imprisonment, it was a period of 13 years. And we don't know quite where the dividing line between the two was. But why would it be that this would happen to a man concerning whom we are told over and over again in the narrative of Genesis explicitly that God was with him? And yet for 13 years, he's in slavery and in prison. And we see quite clearly the fruit of the fact that God was with him and that he had the favor of his master, he had the favor of the jailer, he had success in his undertakings, he was able to interpret these two dreams. But still the question is why? Why would God do this to a man that he was present with? Why would God do this to a man that he was blessing? Why would the Lord give Joseph the insight to know when the cupbearer was going to get out of prison, when he didn't give Joseph the insight to know when he himself was going to get out of prison. Joseph's position is a hard one to be in. And I think that Psalm 105, verses 17 through 19, may give us a hint as to what was going on here. The psalmist is speaking about the Lord, what he's doing with his people, and he's speaking about Joseph as well. He says, He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, they afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time came that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And when it says there that the word of the Lord tested him, the word that's used there in Psalm 105, 19 is the word that's used for smelting, refining with a refiner's fire, that kind of of testing. And so, as Joseph endured this unjust imprisonment, he was under the Lord's refining fire, being refined, being tested, and ultimately proving true. 
In such a process, the impurities get consumed and the pure gold of the pure and godly character is left and then is brought to shine on the surface. And so it is with all of God's people. For all who are in Christ, we have the presence of God with us. Our physical bodies now are temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. But, like Joseph, we go through trials. And, like Joseph, we may not understand why, and we may not see an expiration date on those trials. And we don't understand why, and we don't think the trials are necessary. We think that we can get along well enough without them. Thank you. But God knows better than we do. And the trials are for our good. And therefore Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this world, we are often subjected to the crucible of trial so that when Christ comes, the proof of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. And James gives us some insight into this, into how this works, when he says in James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the refining process, not only are the impurities burned off, but we too are strengthened. We are tested so as to produce endurance. And this is, this is the way it works with our physical bodies, isn't it? That in order for our physical endurance to be produced, you have to stretch your physical limitations to the point that you don't think you can do anymore. And maybe you're going past, be, uh, past what you thought you could do, past what you think you can bear. And the Lord often utilizes those same methods in the strengthening of our souls. We come into a period of struggling and wonder how we will ever make it out on the other side, wondering if we will make it out on the other side. And certainly if we were left to ourselves, we wouldn't make it out on the other side. But the Lord, by his grace, strengthens us and sustains us moment by moment and day by day. And he uses these trials to strengthen our souls, to cause us to look away from ourselves and to look to Christ as the source of our strength to look to Christ as the source of our hope, the source of our help, to look to Christ as our all in all. The Lord uses those trials to bring us to the end of ourselves so that Christ may be glorified in us. And obviously those trials take numerous forms. For Joseph, it was slavery and imprisonment. For some of us, it may be physical infirmity and ill health. For some of us, it may be what they call the dark night of the soul, whether it's coming to grips with our own sinfulness or contending against doubt and unbelief, which seeks to gain mastery over our hearts. And that list could could be expanded. And I'm sure those, those categories that I mentioned have many different manifestations within them. James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And various trials are just that, 
Various, many different kinds. One way or the other, whatever your particular trial may be, let it be the catalyst that directs your heart to Jesus Christ, even in the darkest of times. Even when you don't understand God's reasons for what may be happening to you, even then, keep looking to Jesus, keep trusting him, keep obeying him, keep turning from your sins. And I can assure you upon the authority of God's word that in doing that, all will be well for you in the end. God's providence in our lives is very mysterious to us. And we can't always tell why God is dealing with us as he is and the the providential circumstances that come into our lives. But that's all right. We We don't have to know what God is up to in these particular things. Because I can assure you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, all things are working together for your good, and all things are working together for the glory of God. And we can praise him for that. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen us when you are testing us by your word, when you are refining us. Lord, we pray that we would not kick against you, when you refine us, but that we would submit ourselves to you, and Lord, that your spirit would would work within us, that indeed our sinfulness would be consumed, that we'd be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And we ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.